So, we're going to pick up from where we left off last time. We, um, last time we talked about relative dating, and what was that? What, what did we learn with, what can we learn from relative dating? Remember, we can learn, we use principles like superposition, which layers at the bottom, which is at the top. We use um, lateral continuity, that the layers would continue unless something stopped them and all that sort of stuff. We use it to reconstruct a sequence of events, okay? So it's um, dating things in the sense that we're figuring out which are older and which are younger, but we're not actually putting an age to them. Whether things occurred over several years or whether things occurred during one flood event, the, ap- the uh, relative dating doesn't tell us specifically, okay? Something that would be able to actually give an age on things, give an actual date on things, would be absolute dating, okay? Now, um, we'll be getting into some of the scientific ways to try to find the absolute dates of things. But, from our perspective, since we accept the Bible as true and as the Word of God, we're going to start with this. Now, um, can you all see that well enough down there? What do we got going on here? Can you tell what this is? Yes, it is a genealogy, and it's coming primarily from Genesis 5 through 11. Genesis 5 takes us the the genealogy from Adam to Noah, and then Genesis 11 takes us from Shem to Abraham. Kind of in the middle there, determining Noah and Shem, I also used Genesis 7 and 8 because the flood is given relative to Noah's age and then the birth of Shem's first son is given relative to the flood also. So I was able to connect them that way, alright? Anyway, um, so I wanted to show that this is the information we actually have in the Bible, okay? We've got the, not only do we have the lineage telling who was the father and who was the son with each of these intervals, we also have the age of the father when the son was born and then how old the father was when he died. Now the important one is age of the birth of the son because we can add all this up and use that to figure out the age, the time from Adam to Abraham, okay? Now, before we look at that number and everything and move on, we should uh, point this out. We're starting with Adam. Why? He was the first man created, yes. And how come Adam knowing how long ago Adam lived gives us an indication of how old the earth was. Yes. If we look at Genesis 1, and if we read Genesis 1 and 2 in a straightforward manner, as in we just read them as a historical count of God describing how he created the world, then the entire earth was created in six days. And Adam was created on the sixth day, right? 
So Adam would be six days younger than the earth and the universe itself. So if we can peg how old, how long ago Adam lived, we can peg how old the earth is, right? Make sense? Okay. Um, And we end at Abraham. Why do we end at Abraham down here? Um, Yes, Genesis 11 does end with Abraham, but there's a few practical reasons for that. What nation came from Abraham? Israel. Israel, right. And Israel had to interact with many nations, such as Egypt and other nations in the Middle East and so forth. And so we can put Abraham in a historical context. And so if we put Abraham in a historical context, and we can work backwards from Abraham to Adam, we can then determine an actual age of the earth. Okay? Alright, now this is a chart showing the same people over here. Adam to Abraham, showing the lifespan, and then the line here shows the birth of the son and so forth. And we can kind of see the overlap in these generations, all right? Um, Do note, we're looking at close to 2,000 years between the creation of Adam and the birth of Abraham, right? And this is why you commonly hear um, people who accept the Genesis account say that the earth is around 6,000 years old. You can put the time of Abraham around 2000 BC. And if that's 2000 BC, that's about 4,000 years ago. If you go back another 2,000 years, you're around 6,000, okay? Um, It's very difficult to be dogmatic about a specific date for creation simply because... um, The accuracy of this is going to depend in part on how accurate we know when Abraham was alive. And we're doing that mostly from historical evidence. Certainly it's going to be within a reasonable time period. But you know, you could be off by several years in there. And then it's also possible that there's a few extra years in the genealogy given here. We're told how old the father was when the son was born. We're not told what year of his life he was. You know, was, was, did he just have his birthday or was he about to have his birthday and that can add an extra year or two in there okay so that's why we say around 6,000 years but it's very reasonable to accept based on a genealogy like this that the earth is around 6,000 years okay sound good make sense okay I want to read something to you from the footnotes in my bible And this is the footnotes regarding the portion of the genealogy. And again, keep in mind that this genealogy spans essentially from Shem to Abraham. Something in the footnote of my Bible commenting on this genealogy. Okay? As is common in ancient genealogies, it is apparent that this genealogy contains gaps. If it were precisely sequential, the events of chapters 9 through 11, and by the way, chapters 9 through 11 in Genesis, what's that cover? Do you happen to know offhand? Um, It's actually right after the flood, up to the end of this chapter, so um, you're dealing with Noah Noah and his family disembarking from the ark, um, and all that, all associated with that, up to the Tower of Babel and the dispersal of the people, okay? So, 
Um, if it were precisely sequential, the footnote says, the events of chapters 9 through 11 would cover less than three centuries. All of Abraham's ancestors would have been still living when he was born, and Shem would have outlived Abraham by 14 years. And you can actually see some of that here in the genealogy. This is Abraham right here, right? Everybody up to Shem, and even including Noah, were alive at the time Abraham was born. And it is true indeed that Shem and, uh, who's this guy here? Shelah. He also would have actually outlived their great, 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 great grandson. Okay? They're taking this, though, as an, that, though, as an impossibility. Um, the purpose of this genealogy is to record the advance of the messianic line. And that's their conclusion. Okay? Now, the reason I read that to you is because I wanted to point out that there's some... You have to be very careful with thinking like this, okay? First of all, they start off by saying, as is common in ancient genealogies. And apparently it is common. If you look at ancient genealogies from different cultures, um, especially in the Middle East, there will be noticeable gaps in, the, um, in their genealogies, okay? Big question. How does that relate to what's recorded in the Bible? Was the Bible written by men using the traditions around them? In part, yes. But also, never forget that the Bible is the Word of God, right? And therefore, we do expect it to be different in context and in accuracy compared to the writings of men, ancient genealogies, okay? So I wanted to point that out first of all. They begin their reasoning on a very shaky foundation. They say, okay, ancient genealogies contain gaps. It's reasonable to conclude that this contains gaps. And I'm going to argue that, no, this is different. The Bible is not like other historical documents, okay? So we're going to discard that reasoning and see what else they say, okay? They say, if it were precisely sequential, the events of chapters 9 through 11 would cover less than three centuries. So the implication there is that there's a lot of stuff going on in a short amount of time, okay? Is that a reasonable reason to discard something as an accurate genealogy? Not necessarily. You can get a lot of stuff accomplished in 300 years, right? Uh, one comparison I like to make is this. How long has our nation been around? I'm sorry, 300 years. I said 3,000. Three centuries is 300 years. Less than 300 years, right? So it's entirely possible for a whole host of events to occur in 300 years. So simply saying that there was a lot happening in a short time isn't a reason to discard the genealogies, okay? Um, how about this one? They pointed out that Abraham was alive when, I'm sorry, all of Abraham's ancestors were alive when he was born. Is that a reasonable reason to discard these genealogies and say that there are noticeable gaps in it? <laughs> no. No. First of all, notice the trend. We are dealing, before the flood, with very old people, right? By the way, 
every one of these, except for a couple, the men were living 900 more and more years, correct? Methuselah is famously the oldest person ever recorded in the Bible. There he is right there. Um, He died at 969 years, okay? And so we see a noticeable decline in lifespans since the flood. Kind of one big decline from Noah to Shem, And then another one right here when things almost kind of level off. Okay? Now, why exactly we have these... This noticeable decrease in lifespan isn't exactly known. There's, there's different ideas as to how this happens. <clears throat> Some say that it was uh, pre-flood conditions were just more optimum environmental conditions and people were able to live longer because of that. Um, other ideas, the one I actually favor is that you had issues occurring during, in the genetics basically. There's a very strong component of genetics to aging. Um, Your cells, for example, can only divide a certain number of times before they're incapable of dividing any further. You need to have your cells continue to divide to stay alive so that by the time your cells can no longer reproduce anymore, you're basically at the end of your lifespan. And that's controlled through genetics. There are specific genes that can control when and how that happens. All right? So that's actually, and again, this is all speculation. We really can't go back and um, sample the genes of these people and try to figure out what was going on. It would be nice if we could, but that's impossible, okay? So there are various ideas as to why this happens, but we do know that the earth was changing regardless of, what the purpose, of, regardless of how it happened. And so to simply say that it's impossible for Abraham to have been born when his ancestors were all alive is to ignore the historical context of what's happening in Genesis, okay? And so that's not a reasonable reason to say that there must have been gaps, okay? If we wanted to check to see if there were gaps in these two Genesis genealogies, what should we look at to try to figure out if there are gaps? And I'll give you a hint. This is scripture we're working with. How do we tell whether something or interpretation of scripture is correct? We test it against scripture. There are two other places in the Bible where the same genealogy genealogy is given. These two genealogies don't have the age of the fathers when the sons were born, but they at least give us the sequence. Okay? Anybody happen to know where they are? Luke has one of them. The other is actually 1 Chronicles. I mean, and that kind of makes sense. I mean, what's the whole purpose of Chronicles? To record the chronology, you know, record the genealogies. And they do start 1 Chronicles all the way back with Adam and go to Abraham. So here's the genealogy that we already looked at, the combined genealogy of Genesis 5 through 11, and then the genealogy we get from 1 Chronicles 1. Notice any gaps between those two? No. No. They're actually exactly the same. Okay? Now, let's look at the Luke 3 genealogy. First thing I'll note is that some of the names are a little bit different. 
Like, for example, we have our Pashad, and I apologize if somebody actually knows how to pronounce that. I don't, so I'm just trying. Um, but you have this name here, and then in the Luke genealogy, it's our Faxad. It's the same person, okay? The difference is you're looking at a translation from Hebrew versus a translation from, that's either Aramaic or Greek. I don't know exactly which one it is, but it's translating from a different language. So the appearance of the name is going to be slightly different, okay? Do you notice any gaps or differences between the Genesis 5 and 11 and the Luke 3 genealogies? Do you know which name is extra? Can you tell? It is. Canaan right here. We go from these two being the same, those two being the same. Okay, Noah, Shem, Arpashgad. Noah, Shem, Arphaxad. Shela, Cain. But then Shela picks up right here and then we continue. Okay? So based on this information alone, are there gaps? Can we tell that there are gaps in the Genesis account? Possibly one. Okay. If we accept that there's possibly one missing generation, is that going to affect our 6,000 year estimate much? 50 years maybe. Okay. Um, so, rather than doing what my footnotes did and using <clears throat> ancient texts to try to interpret what was happening in the Bible rather than using what appears reasonable to us and use that to interpret the Bible. If we actually look at the Bible itself and let the Bible interpret itself, we are looking at, at most, a generational gap of one person, which doesn't change things much. Okay? <clears throat> I will point out that you might notice Canaan actually appears twice in this genealogy. It has been suggested that this is a scribal error. That um, the name Canaan up here accidentally got transcribed later in the um, genealogy down there. If that is accurate, then all three of these would be the exact same genealogy. Okay? Now, Lest you think that I'm saying that there's an error in the Bible, I'm not. I'm saying that it was a scribal error in copying the Bible, not an error in the Word of God itself. Okay? But there is that idea that this one has an extra individual by mistake. Okay? So I wanted to point this out, that if we're going to find determine the age of the earth, based on the genealogies of Genesis... We should use the rest of the Bible to interpret that, not apply our own human reasoning to it, because that could lead to potential errors, okay? So in other words, I don't agree with what the footnotes of my Bible are saying. All right? So that's how we would do things. That's how we would determine the age of the earth and um, try to figure out how long ago some of these events we've been looking at happened, okay? Because if we can figure out the age of the earth and we can look at the genealogies, as I said, the uh, occurrence of the flood is given relative to Noah's age. We can figure out when the flood occurred and that would give us an indication of when, how old the rocks are and so forth, okay? That's how we would do things starting with scripture as the word of God, as a record of actual historical events. How else could we deter, try to determine the age of things? 
Well, you'd essentially need some sort of clock, okay? You're all familiar with clocks, right? How, why does a clock work? How can we use it to tell time? It does show the time, but how come you can look at a clock now, see the time, come back some time later, and it's still telling the right time? Have you ever thought about that? No. There's a regular process in the clock. Those, put it in real simple terms, that second hand, that second hand moves a certain amount every second, correct? So there is some process happening in the clock, happening at a regular rate, and it's occurring all, all the time, and that's just continuously moving the clock around so that it's always telling the correct time, right? Okay, I wanted to nail that down, that concept down, because you can look at certain phenomena in the world and try to treat them as clocks, okay? You try to look at some thing that is happening in nature, something that appears to occurring at a regular pace, at a regular rate, and use that as a clock to determine how old that thing is, okay? Now, there's a number of different ideas that have been proposed to explain what could be a clock and how they work, okay? But let's get... Three assumptions out of the way right from the beginning. Anytime you're going to use something as a clock, you have to make certain assumptions in order for that clock to be treated as accurate. The first assumption is you have to know the original condition of the clock. You basically have to know what the clock was originally set at. Okay? Second, you have to believe that the clock or demonstrate that the clock has been unaffected by anything outside of it. Nobody has come along and changed the clock while you were absent, okay? Scientists refer to this as a closed system. A closed system refers to um, something occurring in nature that is happening entirely within itself, and there's nothing from the outside that is affecting it, okay? Then finally, you have to assume that the clock has been moving, that the clock has been ticking at a constant rate. You've probably all had a circumstance where the batteries in the clock fail and it suddenly stops, right? So if you came back and looked at the clock after the batteries have run out, it's no longer accurate because it hasn't been ticking at a constant rate, correct? Okay. You have to make these three assumptions for any clock you observe in nature to be accurate. All right? So let's put, put this to a little bit. Let's put this to practice a little bit. Let's look at just a normal wall clock, okay? How is the assumption that you know the initial conditions, how does that apply to the clock? What are the initial conditions you need to assume here? <clears throat> this one is, yeah, it's, it's like uh, 7 minutes till 11 on this clock, yes. But in order to be able to read it at... 7 minutes to 11, what do you have to assume about how the clock was originally set? It was at <laughs> yeah, you have to assume that when it was originally set, it was an accurate time, correct? <clears throat> if it was midnight and it was set at 3 o'clock, this isn't going to tell you the correct time, is it? Okay? <clears throat> how does the assumption of it being a closed system, of nothing affecting the clock, come into play? 
And I did actually allude to this one directly just a moment ago. Yeah, you have to assume that nobody has come in and adjusted the clock, right? And then finally, you have to assume that everything, that the ticking of the clock was occurring at a constant rate. And in this particular case, assume that the battery has been going steady the entire time, correct? Okay. Simple example. But, you know, we rely on these assumptions all the time with our wall clock. Sometimes we might check and make sure that doesn't seem right. But, you know, we still rely on these assumptions for the most part, correct? Okay. But we're still making those assumptions. We might not know it all the time, but we are making those assumptions. <coughs> okay. Ah, nope. Went too far. There we go. All right. Uh, hourglass. How does this apply to our, uh, how can we apply our assumption that we know the initial conditions? What's the assumption being made with this specifically? Well, it can't stop. Actually, you can't stop it. You just lie it on its side. You do have to make that assumption, don't you? <clears throat> you do have to make the assumption that um, when this when the time began, all of the sand was in the upper chamber. <clears throat> Alright, now what about assuming that it's a closed system? Assuming that nothing interfered with it? Nobody knocked it over. <laughs> yeah, nobody knocked it over. Nobody shook it. That there wasn't a particularly large piece of sand that got stuck in there for a moment before falling through. Okay. Um, and then, actually that last one might apply more to a constant rate assuming that the sand was trickling through at a constant rate, right? Um, I will point out this one, though, because this is going to be relevant to what we're going to be talking about in just a moment. As long as the bulb is completely sealed, you can at least be relatively certain that no sand has been added or taken away from the system, correct? Meaning that... Um, you can at least tell the total amount of sand and you can say, okay, if we extrapolate the rate at which it is trickling through now backwards, we can tell how long it would have been when this entire thing was filled. Again, assuming it was a completely closed bulb. I, I really don't play with these things that often and know if there are any that have a valve in them to add more sand or not. But there we go, okay? All right, now let's look at a clock that geologists quite often use. This is radioisotope dating. How many of you have heard of that one? Okay, most of you. Yeah. All right, <clears throat> to put this in some context, the term isotope describes atoms that are of the same type but have differing atomic masses. Um, Example, the example given here is carbon. All carbon atoms are exactly the same. They're exactly the same chemically. They have the same composition. They behave all the same way. The only difference between different carbon atoms is that some of them are carbon-12, some of them are carbon-13, and some of them are carbon-14. To put it in real simple terms, the difference there is weight. Carbon-12 are the lightest, and carbon-14 are the heaviest, okay? Those are isotopes, different weights of the same type of atom. Now, how are isotopes used in radioisotope dating? Well, some isotopes are unstable. 
A list of unstable isotopes are given here. Carbon-14 is unstable, potassium-40, uranium-235, and uranium-238. I picked those ones specifically because these particular isotopes are often used in radioisotope dating. Okay? Um, to say that it's unstable means that this atom is going to break down. And as it breaks down, that atom is going to be turned into a different type of atom, and at the same time it's going to release radiation. Okay? So, for example, carbon-14, when it decays and breaks down, it becomes nitrogen-14. Potassium-40 becomes argon-40. Uranium-235 becomes lead-207. And uranium-238 becomes lead-206. Okay? There is a particular equation that relates the amount of parent isotope the amount of parent isotope present in a mineral to the amount of parent isotope that was originally there and relates that to the amount of time that has passed. Okay? <clears throat> now the explanation is given here, but I'll walk you through it real quick. A sub zero, this is our original amount of, of parent isotope. How much of the carbon-14 did we have? How much of the uranium-238 did we have? And so forth. Okay? That's the starting amount. The E here is a constant. For those who are familiar with math, that's the constant for the natural logarithm. Okay? And then E raised to the power of negative lambda T. Lambda is a decay constant. As its name suggests, it is believed that this is a constant. Anytime you take radioactive isotopes, measure them in the laboratory, and see how quickly they, de they decay, they do decay at a constant rate in the laboratory. And you can put a number to that decay, and that is our decay constant here. Okay? T is the amount of time that has passed, and A is the amount of isotope that is remaining. Okay? <clears throat> Alright, now I do want to point out that this equation is derived from a very common equation for growth. Um, this general setup where you have the remaining amount of something, the original amount of something, times e raised to some power, that's a general growth equation that can be used to describe everything from radioisotope decay to the growth of a population of animals out in the wild and even to the growth of um, interest in an account. Okay, It's all the same equation. So the point is, this equation does work. We have found many different types of applications for this sort of thing. Okay, For this sort of equation, I should say. Now let's talk about the specific application of this equation to dating rocks. I said we're looking at isotopes found in minerals. Okay? Keep that in mind. That's how this process works. We can go out, we can look at specific types of minerals, measure the amount of whatever isotope we're studying. Uh, we'll use uranium as our example because that's a very common one used in geology. We can measure the amount of uranium present in that mineral today. Take a guess as to how much uranium was there to begin with. We can measure the decay constant of uranium in the laboratory, plug those numbers into an equation like this, and come out with how long that uranium has been decaying. Okay? Let's apply our three assumptions. Our first assumption, 
Knowing we, uh, assuming we know initial conditions, what would be, how would that assumption apply to this? Yeah, yeah. If we're looking at this as the amount of isotope present today, we have to have some way of trying to guess how much was there to begin with. And by the way, as wild as a guess that that may seem to be, many times that's not too difficult of an assumption to make. The reason is because, remember kids, we talked about minerals. Minerals have a very regular pattern and shape to them, right? You can only fit so many radioisotopes in a mineral. And by figuring out how those radioisotopes fit in the mineral, you can get a pretty good guess as to how much radioisotope there could have been when it originally formed. Okay? It's still an assumption. Sometimes that assumption is wrong, but you can sometimes reasonably make a guess there. Alright, now let's apply our second one. That is a closed system. How would um, whether something got altered along the way apply to this? Uh, we'll get to that one in just a moment. That's the assuming the const constancy of decay, okay? You know what, we'll go ahead and, since it was brought up, we'll go ahead and address that one. If we look at our third assumption, that the clock has been ticking at a constant rate, that's assuming that this decay constant has been the same over time. Okay? It's an assumption we can't really test because you're looking at something that happened many years ago unless you can invent a time machine to go back and test it. You can't really test that idea. But I will say this. Almost every one of these decay constants for these radioisotopes are impossible to alter in the laboratory. Okay? Alright, now back to the second assumption, which is the one that it was a closed system, that nothing altered along the way. How can we have things being altered along the way? Weathering, definitely. Especially if it's a mineral that would be um, exposed to the surface of the earth or along cracks and fissures where there would be the ability to leach some isotope out or leach some isotope in. Yes, that would be ways to alter um, you're reading from something like this, okay? And by the way, geologists are well aware of these assumptions. And this is why they're very careful when they collect specimens that they use for dating the minerals. They'll try to find a mineral that doesn't look like it was exposed to the surface at all. They'll try to find a mineral that is encased inside a rock that doesn't have any cracks and stuff in it, okay? So, those are the assumptions that go into this, alright? Now, this here is a piece of zircon. Zircon is just the name for this particular type of mineral. The reason I'm bringing it up here is because uranium very easily fits into the mineral structure of zircon, and therefore it is a favored type of mineral used in uranium lead dating, okay? Now, there we go. A creationist, actually a group of creationists, about almost two decades ago now, um, tested many of these assumptions of radioisotope dating. And I'm going to focus 
on one research in particular that was conducted by Dr. Russell Humphreys. He looked at uranium decay in zircon crystals. Okay? Um, first, he tested them according to the normal assumptions that the radioisotope decay constant is constant, is indeed constant, that you can actually know the amount of uranium that was in the zircon crystal, and that these specimens that he took them from were in fact isolated from the outside environment. Did an age date on them and got about 1.2 billion years. Okay? which is what the standard accepted age of the minerals from the formation he got these zircon crystals from. Okay? Then he looked at helium. Remember I said that uranium, when it decays, it releases radiation, right? Part of that radiation actually produces helium, just the gas helium. And so you have little... Um, not pockets really, just little atoms of helium trapped in the mineral structure of zircon. Now I say trapped, they're not completely trapped. The helium is small enough that it can actually squeeze between the mineral structure of zircon, but it does so at a relatively slow rate. Okay. Now you can calculate how many how much helium would be produced if you know the initial amount of uranium in that zircon? Okay? So in other words, the amount of helium produced is tied to the amount of uranium you assume to be there in the beginning. It's making the exact same assumption that you would need for doing the radioisotope dating. That's my point. We're just looking at a different clock. We're looking at the diffusion of helium out of the zircon crystal. Okay? Using that method, Dr. Russ Humphreys determined that the amount of helium still present in the zircon crystal would be the amount of helium expected if those crystals were formed about 6,000 years ago, which clearly is a lot closer in age to what we expect from the biblical genealogies, correct? Okay. But now the big... Billion dollar question. Billion, because we're dealing with billions of years. Ha ha ha. Um, which of these ages is correct? We're really having to make the same assumptions about both, aren't we? We're having to assume the same initial conditions, the same initial amount of uranium. We have to assume that both of them are in a closed system. We have to assume that both of them are either decaying at a constant rate or diffusing at a constant rate. So we have to make the same assumptions, but we're clearly getting two different ages. So which one is correct? Whoops. One way we can approach this is simply say, which one fits with the genealogy that we already know of from the Bible? If we accept that the Word of God is true, and that the genealogies that are given in Genesis 9... Sorry, Genesis 5 and 11 are accurate. Then clearly the helium diffusion is correct and there was something wrong with the radioisotope dating. On the other hand, if we rely only on observations, the uranium lead is considered to be most likely to be correct. The reason I make that latter statement, yes, we're making the same assumptions, but a very important thing to note is this. As I said before, scientists have tried. They can't get 
radioisotope decay to change. You know what you can alter? The rate of diffusion. It takes extreme conditions, but you can alter the rate of diffusion. So if a secular geologist is faced with two dates that are giving, sorry, two clocks that are giving two different dates, they're going to typically go with the radioisotope one simply because they don't know how to alter that one. They know theoretical ways to alter the other one, so they're typically going to stick with the radioisotope dating. Okay? Whoops. And here's a couple of quotes um, from Dr. Humphrey's research, and I apologize, I forgot to put the date in there. I think this was uh, published in 2003 or 2004. But um, here's a couple quotes, and this is when he was addressing that direct question. He said, okay, we've got two different dates here, we've got two different clocks, how do we reconcile them? He says, one way to reconcile these two hourglass readings is to suggest that one of them has a valve at its bottleneck, controlling the trickling rate. A valve that was adjusted dramatically in the past, either by natural mechanisms or possibly by direct intervention from God. Okay? I do want to point this out. In his research, he suggested that there was supernatural intervention and that that was what was causing the difference in the dates. Okay? I point that out partly because that's not an assumption you're going to find a secular geologist making. Later on, the next page... Um, this is after he has uh, talked about some of the theoretical ways you can alter the diffusion rates or the radioisotope rates and decided that based on the conditions present there, you can't adjust either of them very significantly. He then says, finally, the preponderance of biblical and geoscience evidence for a young world points to a change that would only affect dating methods which depend on slow decaying nuclei. I wanted to point out that the conclusion he reached, which was that the radioisotope decay was altered at some point in the past, and therefore those are the dates that are wrong, was based at least in part on an acceptance of the biblical genealogies. Okay? In other words, what Dr. Russ Humphreys did, and what many of his colleagues who were involved in the same big research project, and by the way, there were several different studies going on all addressing the same issue of radioisotope dating. <clears throat> the assumption that they made is that they're going to have to reconcile the radioisotope dating with a 6,000-year-old Earth as based on the Genesis account. Okay? In other words, what they did was they interpreted the evidence that they saw based on what the Word of God says. Okay? They used the Word of God as their standard of truth and interpreted what they saw in the minerals, in the rocks, in the radioisotopes, based on the Word of God. Okay? Now, this was the general conclusion of all the scientists involved in this research. They found other evidence to also suggest that the radioisotope decay was not constant, and that it had been altered at some point in the past. But again, behind that conclusion was quite often the assumption that they had to reconcile this with the Genesis genealogies. Okay? 
I highlight this because, again, I, I've said this a couple of times, the um, secular genealogists are not going to make that same assumption. Secular geologists are driven in large part by actualism. Now, before I describe exactly what actualism is, I'm going to talk a little bit about uniformitarianism. Uh, because that's a more common concept. Who knows what uniformitarianism is? Okay, some, some of you raise your hand. Yes. Um, uniformitarianism is often, the concept is often simplified as the present is the key to the past. Meaning, if we are going to see how things occurred in the past, we have to see how things are occurring today in the present. Okay? Now, more formally, uniformitarianism is that present observations at present rates were responsible for the formation of things that are observed today. And it's uniformitarianism that gives you the idea that things changed in the past over slow, gradual processes. Okay? Uniformitarianism is very closely connected to the idea that things in nature occurred in a gradual process. Alright? Actualism is actually very similar in concept to uniformitarianism. The big difference is it's no longer gradual. You still look at the present world to see how things work, but you acknowledge that the conditions might have been different in the past. And therefore, you can have things occurring at faster rates, you can have things occurring on bigger scales, and so forth. So you still look to the present to interpret the past, but you acknowledge that things might have been different from they are in the present, quantity-wise. A larger amount of such and such a thing. A, um, and that those sorts of things could affect the rates at which they occurred, okay? Now, even if they acknowledge that things don't occur at a constant rate, again, keep in mind, they only acknowledge that rates can change if they can change those rates in the laboratory. And since they haven't been able to change the rate at which radioisotopes decay in the laboratory, they don't see how it's possible that those dates can be wrong, okay? So here's, whoops, whoops, wrong direction. Where am I? Okay, I'm sorry. This is uh, kind of a conclusion we've already been talking about here, so I'll just keep this slide up for a moment. Um, so, my point is this. How you interpret these clocks will depend in large part on your assumption. Do you assume that the Word of God is accurate? Then you will treat the helium diffusion as the accurate clock and the radioisotope dating the one that has been altered at some time in the past. Do you accept that the only changes you can observe are changes that you can observe in the laboratory today? If you accept that, then you're more likely to accept the radioisotope dating. Okay? It's, this difference comes down not to a difference in evidence, but to a difference in what you believe to be true. Alright? As Christians, we should always start with what the Bible says and use that as our guide to determine what's true or not. As I put it here, the Bible is our anchor. 
We can make all kinds of observations about our world today. We really have to. If we want to understand how our world works, if we want to fulfill the dominion mandate to go out and fill the earth and subdue it, we have to understand how the world works. And that's going to take a lot of observations on our part. But if something we observe and conclusions that we reach in science contradict what the Bible says, we've got to stick with what the Bible says and reevaluate our interpretation of the evidence. Okay? Um, and that's basically what I've summarized here as it applies specifically to the, radio, the uh, radioisotope dating and the helium diffusion dating, okay? I often like thinking about this verse from Romans 3, 3 through 4. Um, Paul's talking about the uh, human condition and how all men are guilty before God. And here he's specifically talking about the Israelites who were given the word of God, knew what they needed to do in order to obey and follow and please God. And he addresses this question, what if some are unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. I believe that phrase in some translation is, is give, given as heaven forbid or God forbid, okay? Which, if you know much about Paul's writing, when he says that, he, he, that's his full stop. No, it will not happen that way. Okay? Let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now he uses this phrase to declare that no, it doesn't matter how people lived their lives. It doesn't matter what the Israelites did in the past. God will be faithful regardless of what people has done. But I like this phrase. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. We can apply a similar concept to science. Let God be true, the word of God be true, the genealogy in Genesis be true, though every scientist on earth were wrong. And that's what I mean by using the Bible as our anchor. Believe in the Bible and accept what it says and apply what the Bible says about history to science to such a degree that if everybody around you disagrees with your conclusion of what the Bible says, you can regard all of them as liars and God is true. Okay? Not saying that you end there and say you're a liar and stop. You can go ahead and try to convince them. Do that. But have that mindset that if it takes calling everybody else a liar in order that God is true, take that view on life, on science. Okay? And so in conclusion, as people who accept the Bible, we do except the basic observations of science. We do look at something like rel relative dating. We accept those assumptions. We, we accept that as a way to be able to, to determine the sequence of events that happened and to create the geologic column and so forth. But we expect that the Bible is true beyond what science can show us. And so if people start taking the geologic column and say, well, these must have occurred millions of years ago because radioisotope dating says this, that's when we say, no, we can't accept that because the Bible says something different. We might be able to find some evidence that would give the same conclusion, like that diffusion of helium. But ultimately, we're not relying on the strength of the diffusion of helium alone. We're using that merely as a way to say that if we interpret 
the, the genealogies in Genesis accurately, we do find some evidence that leads to that. Same conclusion, that leads to that same age. But ultimately, we're going to judge our interpretations of science, the clocks we use to determine the age of the earth, by the Bible, and not the other way around. <laughs>